tell you, I love infomercials. I grew up watching infomercials all the time. Um, my Friday night routine was A&E's and Evening at the Improv came on at 11 o'clock. Me and my sister would watch an hour of stand-up comedy. And then after Evening at the Improv went off, all the TV shows stopped showing their regular shows, and they would only show infomercials. And if you don't know what an infomercial is, I don't even know if they still show them anymore. Um, it's a 30-minute commercial for one product, and they make it look like a real show, and it's awesome. I love an infomercial. Um, I don't know what it is about it. I love watching them demonstrate the products. I love seeing like all the solutions to all the problems that they have. Uh, if you go on YouTube, you can find videos of, of people who just can't do anything right in an infomercial, and their hoses are exploding on them and all this stuff. Like I love watching infomercials. Um, Maybe it, maybe it appeals to the scientific mind, the investigator that likes to see all the experiments and everything like that. I don't know, but, but I, I watched a lot of them, all right? And these were two of my heroes, Billy Mays and Ron Popeil. And uh, anytime these guys were on an infomercial, I knew it was going to be a good one. And so I watched a lot of infomercials about kitchen products, about mops, about things for your car, about everything. I loved infomercials. And... When I was 12 years old, about, I don't remember the exact age, but I was about 12 years old, I went to a magical land, um, if you're 12 years old. Uh, if you're 12 years old, the town of Throckmorton, Texas is the most amazing place you've ever been, <laughs> especially if your whole family lives there. So my dad's the youngest of 12 brothers and sisters, and so we had a lot of family that grew up and was raised and lived in Throckmorton, Texas, and we would go there. And I loved going to Throckmorton, Texas, because when you're 12 years old in Throckmorton, Texas, um, your aunts and uncles will let you drive their car on real streets in town, and it's the most amazing thing. Like, I loved going to Throckmorton, uh, and if you're really lucky, your older cousin Roger will let you go and make a street with him. And if you don't know what making a street is, I don't know if it only happens in Throckmorton, it might happen in other places, but making a street is you get in the car and you drive back and forth from Clint's, the gas station, to the hospital, and then you do that all night long. And if you stop at a stoplight and one of your friends is there, you roll down your window and you talk to him for a few minutes, and then every once in a while you stop at the parking lot at the hospital and you talk for about 15 or 20 minutes and you get back in your car and you keep driving back and forth from Clint's to the hospital. And it was awesome. And if you're 12 years old and your older cousin Roger invites you to go make a street, do it, okay? It'll change your life. <laughs> one time in particular when I was in Throckmorton, like I said, I was about 12 years old, um, I was at my grandmother's house. And my grandmother lived on this little, little house right on the main street of Throckmorton. If you've ever driven through Throckmorton, you've driven past my grandma's house. Um, we were at my grandmother's house, and right behind her house was my Uncle Dale's house, which was a magical land all its own. And so their, their backyards connected. There was no fence or anything like that. And so we spent a lot of time walking back and forth between Mamaw and Uncle Dale's house. That's where That was like our home base whenever we were in Throckmorton. And one day we were at Mamaw's house, and we heard a knock on the door, which was weird, because normally people just walk into Mamaw's house. No one knocks on the door. They just come on in. But we heard a knock on the door, and so Mamaw went and she opened it, and there was a guy outside, and he had a chest. And he said, do you have a few minutes? Can I come in and show you something? And we were all like, what is this? Like, what's happening? And Mamaw let him in. I don't know why she let him in. Maybe she just thought we would have a, a good time. But she let him in, he brought his chest in, and he opened it up, and he started pulling out all these hoses and pipes and tubes, and then he pulled out this machine, and it was a vacuum cleaner. And he was trying to sell Mamaw a vacuum cleaner, and it was like a dream come true because it was an infomercial that I was actually at. 
Like I was, I was watching it. I was in the room while the infomercial was happening. And he pulled all these things out and he was showing us all the things that this vacuum could do. And he, he, get, he made Mamaw get her vacuum out. And he said, okay, vacuum this part of the floor until you think it's perfectly clean. And so she went over it like 150 times. You didn't hear any dust coming up into the, into the mechanism or anything like that. He goes, you think that's clean? Watch this. And he turned his vacuum on and, and you heard all this dust. We're like, oh my gosh, this thing is amazing. And then he pulled out these hoses and he said, watch this. And then he, 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 he put this attachment on and he said, have you ever wanted to vacuum your couch? Well, now you can. And so he started vacuuming the couch and we heard all the dust coming up from the couch. We're like, oh my gosh, Mamaw, your house is going to be so clean. This is awesome. And then he put on this carpet shampooer attachment and he shampooed this section of the carpet. And then he put on this other attachment and said, you can even shampoo your couch. And he shampooed this little section of the couch. And you could see how much cleaner it was than anything else. And he said, uh, do you have a mattress in the house? And we're like, what's he going to do with a mattress? And Mamaw did have a mattress in the house. And so we went to Mamaw's room, and he got the vacuum cleaner up, and he put it on top of the mattress. He's like, you can even vacuum your mattress. And like, he was vacuuming your mattress, and dust was coming out. We're like, oh my goodness, this is the most amazing day of my life. Like, this is awesome. Mamaw, you have to get this vacuum cleaner. But she didn't. And I couldn't believe that she did not buy this vacuum cleaner. I was like, how could you pass that up? That thing was awesome. It's so much better than the one you had. I, I would buy it in a heartbeat, but I'm 12 years old, so... So he left, and the whole day I was thinking about that guy. I was like, man, do you remember how cool that vacuum was? Like, I don't know if 12-year-olds get excited about vacuum cleaners, but I was excited about this vacuum cleaner because I was there, and I saw it, and it, it blew me away. Well, the next day I was over at my Uncle Dale's house, which was just right behind my mamma's house, and again, we heard a knock on the door. And it was that same guy. And, uh, and I was like, Uncle Dale, you've got to let him in. Let him show you this vacuum cleaner. It's awesome. And so I'm sure this salesman was like, I'm so glad this kid is here. Like, he's my, he's my number one ally right now. And so, so Uncle Dale let him bring his trunk in, and he did the same thing, and he pulled all this stuff out. And I, I had memorized almost word for word his whole presentation. And so I was like, oh, don't forget, don't forget the mattress thing. Oh, he's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Let's go to your bedroom. And so like, I, was, I was reminding him, I'm like, oh, show him the couch shampooer. And like, I was like telling him what to do the whole time. I was like, show him, show him, show him. And I was like, Dale, you got to get this. This is awesome. But he didn't get it either. And I was like, why are these people passing on this? This is awesome. I love this thing. Uh, it was a Kirby vacuum cleaner, by the way. If, if, I don't know if y'all are familiar. Uh, there's like Kirby and Hoover and all, a couple of Electrolux. I had an Electrolux when I was a kid. Um, but I loved watching that demonstration. I loved it. And I think that a lot of us are like that, right? And, and all these infomercials all, and all these salesmen that, that come along, they have this gospel that they're telling you. They have this good news that's going to change your life and they demonstrate it and they show it. And a lot of us get really excited about it. And we're like, yeah, I see. I see the power. I see the benefits. I see all the things. But sometimes we don't get it. We just don't. And we have a lot of reasons why we don't. Maybe it's too expensive. The cost is too high. Maybe uh, we just already have something that we think works just as, fine, just as good and we don't need another one. Maybe we have too much stuff. For whatever reason, we see all these things and we hear all this good news and we just think, I don't, I don't need that. But all of these guys and girls, there's girls that are traveling salesmen too. All these people have a gospel. They have an intent. They have an agenda. They want you to buy something. And they want you to take it home and they want you to use it. They want you to put their thing into use. And the authors of our gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels that we have in our, in our Bible, are the same. They have a reason for writing what they wrote. They have an agenda. They have an intended outcome for their writing. And John even says in chapter 20, verse 31, 
He says, these things I've written so that you may believe. All right, and if at the end of John's gospel, he tells us, there's a lot more I could have told you. There's so many stories that if we wrote them all down, the whole world wouldn't be able to contain the books. So I'm not telling you everything. I'm picking and choosing, and I'm being very specific about what I'm telling you. And these stories that I have shared with you, I'm sharing these stories because I think these are going to make you believe. I want you to believe in the power of Jesus Christ that I saw and I witnessed, and, I, and I'm telling you about him now. He has an agenda. He wants for you to hear and to take it and to make it yours. All the gospel writers have a similar intent. All of them have different audiences they're writing to, and so they write different ways to appeal to different people. And today I want to look at the gospel of Matthew. And so if you have your Bibles open, uh, or if you have your Bibles, you can open them to uh, the first chapter of Matthew. And we're going to start at the beginning because the beginning is a very good place to start. So a couple things that we know about Matthew. Um, for the most part, most scholars believe that Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. He's one of the only gospel writers that is writing primarily to a, a Jewish audience. Everyone else is writing to, to Gentiles or they're making it very broad, trying to, to reach a lot of people. But Matthew is specifically writing to a Jewish audience. And that's important for us to know because... If you're a Jewish reader in this time period, there's a couple of things that you value. And one of the things that you value is discovery of truth. You want to discover it. You want the aha moment where all of a sudden all the pieces click together and you realize it for yourself what's going on in the story. And so if you're writing to an audience that craves this aha moment, you don't just make a bullet point list and give them all the information right off the bat. You're going to bore them. You're going to lose them. You want to... You want to hide the truth so that they can discover it. And you don't want it so well hidden that no one can discover it. And so you leave these little clues. It's like a little treasure hunt for people. And as they read these clues and as they, as they ask the right questions, they're, they're led to this truth that's hidden there so that they can have this aha discovery moment. And Matthew's doing that in his gospel. And if we pay attention, we can see some of the, some of the clues that he leaves that lead us to the truth that he's trying to tell us. And if we start off in Matthew, we begin with a genealogy. And if you spend a lot of time reading the Bible, you know that genealogies are very boring, right? They're just lists of names. And if, if this is your first time to approach a genealogy, a lot of times I remember whenever I'd get to the genealogies, I'd just skip past that to the good part, all right? Maybe you're like me, but Matthew did something with his genealogy. It's special. And it's not a good genealogy. All right, not that it's not accurate or not that, it's, 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 it, the, that he messed up on it, but it's not a good genealogy because whenever you're writing a genealogy, trying to, the reason you write a genealogy is to show that the person you're writing this genealogy for is worth your time. All right, this is, if you're writing a genealogy of a king, you, you, you show all the other kings and conquerors that have led to this point, to this person being on the throne. All, all the things that point to this person being powerful and the right person in Matthew, in his genealogy, we see some issues here, all right? Uh, the first thing that we see that's unusual for genealogies of this time period is that we see the inclusion of four women in this genealogy. If you're a Jew in this time period, this is your first clue. There's something here because women aren't included in genealogies. If you read a lot of genealogies, it's, it's so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and that person was the father of so-and-so, and that was the father of so-and-so, and it's father to son, father to son, father to son. But Matthew includes four women. 
So that's weird. That's enough for us as, as treasure hunters looking for this truth to say, huh, I wonder why there's four women here. And, it, and it's not just four women. It's four women you all have all known if you've read your Bibles. Um, women that might have what we would call a, a checkered or a sordid past. Right? Tamar, who seduced and deceived and lied to her father-in-law and then blackmailed him. That's in the genealogy of Jesus. Then we get to Rahab, who we know is a harlot, who helped the, the people of Israel as they were conquering Jericho. But she has this, she's a woman of ill repute, right? Here's this woman in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth, who wasn't even one of the Jews. She's not even one of the chosen people. She's a Moabite. She's an outsider, a foreigner. And she's included in the genealogy of Jesus. And Bathsheba, an adulteress. We know the story of Bathsheba and David and all the trouble that came along with that. And Matthew includes not just women, but women with not the cleanest history, not the cleanest stories in this genealogy because he's telling us something. He's telling us that Jesus is born from a mess. There's a mess that's leading into the arrival of Jesus. And then we go into the story of Jesus' birth and we see that he's kind of born into a mess also. His, wife, his mother was pregnant without being married. And in his day, there was a lot of the same stigma and, and, and negative connotations attached to that situation, probably even more so than we find today. So much so that whenever they go to look for a place in the inn, they're not even welcome in. Now, I don't know about you. Hospitality has kind of gone a, a little bit outside the, the realm of our values in, in today's world. But I think most of us in this room, if a young pregnant woman showed up at our door and she needed a place to stay, we would make room for her. We would try to find a place for her to stay. But in this society where hospitality was prized above almost everything, they don't make room for her. They could have shoved some people over. They could have put some couches together. They could have done something. They could have found a place for her to stay inside, but they don't. They say, instead, you can go and stay with the animals. You can stay in the stable. And so Jesus is born in a mess, from a mess. He's, he's born into the stable, surrounded by the smells and the odors and the noises, all the things that you would associate with being in a barn. And as we keep going through Matthew's gospel, we see that the first people who, some of the first people who come to Jesus are these wise men from far away, these foreigners, again, that are coming to recognize the dominion and the power of Jesus. They follow the star and they come to see where Jesus is born. And it's these foreigners that first recognize who Jesus is. And at the same time, King Herod is trying to kill all of the young children. And Jesus and his family flee to Egypt. It's an exact reversal of the Exodus story. Where, in, where they flee Exodus to get away from the death of the firstborn child. And that's what sets them free from bondage. And they leave Egypt into the promised land. And here Jesus and his family are leaving the promised land, going back to where bondage happened, fleeing what King Herod is doing. The king of the Jews is killing the children. Then we get to John the Baptist, who is like that crazy uncle that you have, Right? He's a crazy uncle that lives outside, lives in a teepee, never takes a shower, and he stinks, and he smells, and he only eats locusts and honey, right? He's a crazy uncle, and this is the one that's proclaiming, someone's coming, right? 
The Messiah is coming, someone whose sandals I'm not fit to tie. This is who is proclaiming that Jesus is, is, is about to be here. And he calls the disciples, he begins his ministry, and he, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. The most backwards, upside-down sermon that has ever been preached. Jesus is undoing a lot of things that people held to be true for a long time. He's going against the grain. He's saying, everything that you thought, it's not going to be like that. All right? The world praises power and conquerors. But I'm telling you, blessed are the meek, blessed are the lowly, blessed are the hungry and the thirsty, the poor. Those are who are blessed. And he undoes all these things, and he's making things messy everywhere he goes. And as we keep going, we get to the healing of a leper, the most disgusting of all people. Right? I don't know if you've ever seen leprosy. I remember in, in junior high, in health class, they showed us pictures of what leprosy looks like. And it's awful. But these people weren't just sick. They were unclean, ceremonially unclean. If you, if you spent time with them, if you touched them, you were not welcome in the temple. You could not bring sacrifice to God. You had to go and be cleansed yourself. And Jesus goes and heals a leper. And we see a centurion come. And he asks Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus tells all these people, there's no one in Judea who has greater faith than this centurion. And as I was reading this passage as an adult, it hits me different than it used to when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I remember hearing about the centurions and talking about all, all that in Bible class. And we had the flannel graph and we'd put the guys up there and they had the armor and the skirts that looked like they're made out of ties and all that stuff. And in my mind, I just kind of viewed it as like, like they were the policemen of the time. Like they were just around making sure everyone was taking care of, taking care of business. Everyone was doing what they're supposed to do. No one was doing what they weren't supposed to do. But as I read this as an, old, as an adult, I realized something different. Like this is not just a policeman. This is the enemy. This is the conquering force that has taken over our land. These are the people who have dethroned our king and have turned our king into a, a figurehead. And they have taken over our land and our lives and they are in control. This is the enemy of us and Jesus points at this person and he says, this man has more faith than anyone else in Judea, the enemy. And he goes on and he heals more people and he casts out demons. And he goes out and he calms the storm. We get to the, period, the, the, the story where he's, they're out in the boat and the storm rages. And this is odd too, because if you're a Jew at this time, you know that the deep water is where the darkness is. The deep water is the abyss. If you go out into the deep water, you're asking for trouble. And Jesus is out in the deep water. And the storm comes and the boat's about to go down and everyone's scared for their lives. And Jesus show, shows us that even here, in the deepest, darkest places, I am still in control. I have, I have dominion even over this. And we go through all this and we get to chapter 9. And Matthew writes about himself. He puts himself into the story at this point. In chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Now again, I had a misunderstanding of what a tax collector was. I, I knew what the IRS was. 
I knew that we we're not supposed to be fans of the IRS and, and that we don't love paying taxes. And so it's kind of a nuisance. And that's how I equated Matthew, or that's what I equated with Matthew in this story. But again, as I got older and I realized what's really happening, it's something deeper here. Because Matthew's not raising taxes to give to King Herod. He's working for the Roman government. He's working for the enemy. He's kind of a traitor to his people. He sold his people out to make some money. And he's been cast out because of it. There's a reason that the Pharisees talk about how, how evil it is to spend time with the tax collectors. It's because they're working for the enemy. They've turned their back on their own people in order to make a profit. And that's who Matthew is. Matthew's the enemy. He's on the outside. And Jesus comes to him and he says, you, follow me. I've come for you to follow me. And he does. And as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew had a unique perspective of what it really meant to be on the outside. He had made some mistakes. He had done some things. He had made some decisions that put him on the outside. He had the right lineage. He, he was born into the right people, but he had made some selfish decisions, maybe. And because of the decisions he had made, he had been placed on the outside. He was one of the people that we're not supposed to associate with, that we're not supposed to talk to, the ones that when we spend time with them, it makes us look bad. And Jesus goes to him and he says, it's you that I've come here for. The well don't need a doctor. The sick are the ones who need the doctor. And I haven't come to call righteous people. I've come to call sinners. There's a word. It's called a mumser. Anyone ever heard of the word a mumser? All right. I had never heard of it until about a year ago. But a mumser is a word uh, that the Jews would use to describe someone who was born outside of marriage. All right? We have our own word for that these days. And much like our word for it, it took on a lot of different connotations. It didn't just literally mean what it meant. It, it meant someone who's undesirable, someone who we didn't want around, someone who really messed up everything, someone who was on the outside. Right? If you're a mumser, you're not welcome. And I think Matthew writes his gospel to a Jewish audience, reminding him of what Jesus really came to do. Because Jesus came to call the outsiders, the mumsers, the sinners, the sick. That's who Jesus came here for. And that's good news for all of us in this room. Because we are all outsiders, we are all sinners, we are all broken individuals who have fallen short of the glory of God. But praise be to God. He called us anyways. And he has made us worthy. Not because we actually are, but he has just called us worthy because he loves us. Just like Matthew hadn't done anything to change his ways. Jesus went to him while he was still the tax collector and said, I want you to follow me. And Jesus comes to each and every one of us as we are still sinners 
and he calls us and he says, I want you to follow me. I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. I want you to be part of this kingdom that I'm building. I'm doing something great here, and I can't imagine doing it without you being a part of it. And by the grace of God, he pulls us in. And it's important for us to remember that because we kind of have to hold these two truths in our, hand, in, our, in our heads at the same time. And they seem to contradict each other. And one of the truths is we are not worthy. Nothing that we can ever do will make us worthy. Nothing that we will ever do will, will, will earn us the grace and the mercy that we need. We are helpless. And yet, God has called us worthy. And God has shared the grace and the mercy that we need. And he has pulled us into his kingdom. He has called us in. I remember as a, as a kid, people would try to describe what salvation really looked like. And I remember hearing this story, several different variations. This one's like an, like an injured bird, like a, a bird with a broken wing, helpless and defenseless. And God comes and he scoops up the, the baby bird and he, and he heals him and he takes care of him. I've heard that story. I've heard the story of the man out in the sea or the person out in the sea drowning and they've been out treading water for three or four days, and there's no food, there's nothing to drink because it's all salt water, and if you drink it, you're going to dehydrate yourself, and, and you're trapped out there, and you've spent all your energy, and you're about to go under, and right as you're about to go under, Jesus comes with a, with a life raft and a, safety, and a safety vest, and he throws it out, and he pulls you out of the water. That's what, those are the stories that I remember hearing, but it's important for us to realize that's not actually what happened. What really happened is, the, bird's, the, the bird is dead. His head was crushed by a rock. He's been dead for three or four days. You weren't just about to go under. You had already gone under, and you had drowned, and three days have gone by, and your body's starting to bloat and decay, and it's disgusting. That's where you were when Jesus came to you. You didn't do a whole lot, and Jesus just did that last little bit that you couldn't do yourself. Jesus did everything because we were dead in our sin, and Jesus gave us life. And that's the story that we need to tell. That's the story that, that we need to proclaim to everyone is that I was dead and now I am alive. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. And sometimes after we've come to Jesus, it's easy for us to forget where we came from. It's easy, us to, easy for us to forget who we were and what condition we were in and that Jesus saved us, breathed new life into our dead bones and it's important for us to not forget that because whenever we can remember that, we can be truly appreciative and grateful for the gift of what Jesus did for us. And we can view other people a little bit more graciously. It's easy when we forget where we came from. It's easy to turn, turn this book into a measuring stick where we measure ourselves and we, and we say, well, here's where I am on the, on the faith on the faith scale, and I'm, I'm pretty high up here, but so-and-so, they, they do all these bad things, and, and they don't do these good things that they should be doing, and so they're a little lower, and we, we turn it into a measuring stick where we measure ourselves and, and compare ourselves to other people, but this is not a measuring stick. This is a good news story that God has come to save you. I have something I want to show you. Can I show you something? Bear with me one second. I got to get it. It's gone. Oh, no, it is. I found it. Here we go. That scared me for a second. I really did think someone had moved it. So, all right. 
When I was a child, I thought like a child and I spoke like a child. And I did childish things and I couldn't afford curvy vacuum cleaners. But when I became a man, I could afford curvy vacuum cleaners. The first year of our marriage, I remember one day, Megan was at work. That's the only reason this happened, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Megan was at work. She was working at the hospital at the time. And I heard a knock on my door and I opened it up. And there was a guy outside with a trunk. And he said, do you have a second to come in? I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, I have been waiting for this moment my whole life. Please come in. Like, I had already bought it. He didn't know that because I, wa I wanted to see the demonstration again. I wanted him to show me all this stuff again. I was excited all over again. Because when I was younger, I heard the good news, but I didn't make it mine. I didn't take it home. I didn't get to feel the benefits. I didn't get to live the good news. But when he came in that first year of our marriage, I saw it and I was like, yeah. I'm going to get this thing. It's finally going to happen. 20 years later, we still have it. It still works just like new, guys. It's awesome. Um, we don't use it as much because now we have robots to do it. It's all, all that good stuff. But, but I love this thing, and I waited a long time for it. And I think some of us are like this in our faith, that we've heard the story, and we got really excited about it, and we might have even told some people about it, but we haven't fully embraced our own mumserness, our own outsiderness, we haven't taken the gospel in with us. Today, I want you to take it home. I want you to make it yours. I want you to live out of the gift that God has given you, and I want you to tell other people about the good news. It's not a better set of rules that we need to follow. It's not a better constitution. It's not any of those things. What it is is it's good news that Jesus Christ came to bring life where death has reigned, to breathe new life into you, who are dead in your sins. And those that we see out there sinning, who, we need to remember that the sin is the punishment, right? The sin isn't what brings the punishment. The sin is the punishment. When you lie, you're not just punished if you get caught. You're, you've already invited death into your relationships. You've, you, you've broken trust. You've broken, you've broken this connection, the sin is the punishment. The sin is what's killing. The sin is what brings death. But Jesus brings life. Jesus is better than a vacuum cleaner. I'm not going to point at that anymore. <laughs> Jesus is better than whatever else leads us astray and, and, and that, that causes us to follow all of the lies that Satan tells us. And there's no surprise that at the end of Matthew's gospel, we hear this. I'm going to ask everyone to stand as I read this. It's no surprise as Matthew, fully embracing his outsiderness, his mumserness, reminds us that God has called us in so that he could send us out. And he closes his gospel with this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, of all kinds of people, of all different lifestyles, of all different colors, of all different genders. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Church, we are an army of misfits. We are an army of outsiders. We've received the gift of life that has brought us back from the dead. And God has called us all in so that he could send us back out to go to the sick, to go to the sinners, and to tell them the good news of a Jesus who died for them. This week, I pray that we take that call seriously. We take that mission of love, that message of love and grace and peace into our workplaces and into our homes and into our sports fields and into everywhere else that God places us. We are the outsiders. God came for us. And if God came for us, he came for them too. Let's go let them know. Maybe so.